0: Well, this morning we continue our four-week-long look at the beauty and the importance of the church, so I want to encourage you to turn to our passage for today. It's Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. So Romans 12, if you would stand as we read God's Word together and hear what the Spirit says through Paul to the church. For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions so we through many or though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one of another Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's end there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word through Paul. We thank you for these encouragements about our participation and edification in the body of Christ. I pray that this would be an encouragement to us to be participants, to be active in our love for one another, strengthening the faith of those around us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in our first week, we looked at 1 Timothy 2 and Paul's statement that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. We learn how a pillar holds up a roof and a buttress is a support, a side support that keeps the wall steady. And so Paul describes the church as as this institution which Christ established to display, hold up and protect, hold steady that truth. We saw how the apostles could not have imagined anyone living outside of the church, those that professed to follow Christ. They taught that outside of the church, with a capital C, was the world, the system still under the dominion of Satan and sin, and that being in union with other believers in the body of Christ was an extension of being in union with Christ Himself, and absolutely vital and necessary to be able to go out then into the world and to proclaim the good news. And as we know, his familiar words from Matthew 16, Jesus said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the church, Jesus said, was to exist in opposition to the very gates of hell. And and Jesus was saying that this was the, the ultimate goal, this what his ministry was leading towards that the church he would build therefore was not simply just in the scope of his three-year ministry. It wasn't just in the scope even of the first century. But it was within the scope and context of that cosmic battle that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the promise of God to Adam and Eve that one day a son of The woman, a seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent and be victorious. And so this church that Jesus intended to build was the goal to not only what his messianic ministry was leading, but the whole of redemptive history had been progressing. It was proof of his victory over the serpent. And last week we also talked about how the church is not just this meeting place of a crowd of self-concerned individuals once a week. It's too easy for us to be distracted and conditioned by the world's philosophy of secularism and believe that the church exists to meet our practical needs and to entertain us. And instead we learned that the significance of the church is that it is a new order. It is meant to transform us, to transform even the world. It is to prepare us for battle. And it not only reveals the wisdom of God in uniting both Jew and Gentile, but it is also what creates a family, this republic, if you will, of love. So what makes the church both a mystery and a magnet to the world is that we love and that we live in this way, as Christ's helpmeet, his bride, the pillar and the buttress of truth, his body, as a household, as a family. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named and according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength and listen to this part here to comprehend with all the saints what is the breath including this passage, over and over again, emphasizes that we are not just isolated individuals. In this section from Ephesians, we see terms like family and church, and always the plural you, your hearts, all the saints. And so Paul's prayer is that the entire church All of the saints would be filled with the fullness of God and therefore bring him glory throughout all generations. And in fact, there is something unique about the fact that we are in the plural, all of the saints, having this done to and through us through the Holy Spirit that makes the church unique and different and powerful. So yes, God is at work in you, the individual strengthening your faith, increasing your wisdom, blessing you with gifts, but that is all meant, as we see there, to function within the context of the plurality of the church. And so a good question at this point is, as we are moving towards the second half of this look is how do you view the church? Do you still see it as an obligation? Are you distracted by all the things that you don't like about being a part of the church? Do you still kindle or hold on to past offenses or regrets? Have you lost your sense of being a part of the church? Or do you believe that aside from God, showing up and showing the way, and aside from all of us joining together as the body in this corporate unity together, united to Christ, united to one another, laying down our lives with and for you, that what you're trying to do simply won't get done. That is what it means to be a part of the church. We need you, you need us. And it is not good that Jesus should be alone, and so he forged us into a bride. That's what it means to be the church. And as we turn our thoughts back to our morning's passage in Romans, we realize a little of what it means to live as this family and as this household of God. Paul writes, for us, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually we are members of one another. Paul says that we have different functions, different roles to play in the body. And together, we are to work in cooperation and unity so that the body as a whole operates the way God designed it. And most of you likely know what it is like to have a body that at times does not cooperate the way you would like it to. And for me, that certainly is true. I seem to have a lack of coordination in normal walking. <laughs> I'm just fine in sports. I can catch a softball or run down a trail or serve a volleyball, but walking on a sidewalk? Not a chance. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been trying to give Wendy a hand, particularly when her legs are giving her some difficulty, and I, I happen to find that crack in our driveway or a root in the ground and I cause her to wrench her knee. Yeah, thanks. Right, and, and the helps that I'm giving her. And the various parts of the body are supposed to work together. My brain is supposed to tell my entire body to move in fluid motion. My arms are supposed to serve as counterweights as I walk. My eyes are to watch. That's probably part of the problem. My eyes are to watch for the obstacles and the breaks in the ground. But inevitably, when the body doesn't perform faithfully or properly, it is the result of body parts that either are not working at all or are working against their intended purpose. Imagine walking. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that doesn't help in walking straight. Or they're lacking to cooperate with one another. The various members of the church may have different functions But all of them are supposed to be interdependent. That's a purposeful word, not independent. But interdependent and complementary. Because every one of us must rely upon the other to accomplish the will of the brain, which is the Holy Spirit working through us. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1... We see now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And all these are empowered, Paul says, of the Spirit, Uh, And by the one and same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And these words, of course, from Paul occur in a letter sent to a church That was anything but what we see here. It was not united. It was divided by so many things and in conflict over so many issues. And as a result, the Corinthians were neither edifying others nor were they glorifying the Lord. And when we arrive at 1 Corinthians at the topic of spiritual gifts and how they were not being used or how they were being abused, we discover that Corinth is actually not much different than America today. In many of our nation's churches, sometimes even in our own, members of the body either go unnoticed or decline to participate. 80% of the work often done by 20% of the people, and in the midst of that, there often arises an in-crowd, right? The, The core that does sometimes the work or makes the decisions or is the popular group or whatever, and then there's a fringe crowd or multiples of them, the groups that either just participate as audience members or don't quite know how to fit into the in crowd, and they begin to resent one another, and and factions arise, and if it's not stopped, ultimately division and death begins to occur in the body. Or consider a related situation, also common both in Corinth and in America. One set of body parts starts to think that all the others should be just like them. Right? The prayer conscious man, for example, starts to get frustrated that other people don't seem to pray as often as he does. Or maybe it's the gregarious, outgoing social woman who's bothered that other women aren't as involved as she is in some of the church functions and fellowships and the same topics. Noses want other noses. Knees want knees, and pretty soon the elbows are saying there's something wrong with that person, because that person should be an elbow, just like me. And as we drive down these highways and roads of Stanislaus County, you will undoubtedly see church after church, each one with a handful of ears or uh, cars and, and more in the parking lot, and that's a, a church for legs and ears here, and a church for mouths and assorted earlobes there. But God does not say that only one demographic is to be welcomed at each local body. Nor does he say that the church must be full of extroverts or full of introverts or full of intellectuals or full of non-intellectuals, you name it. Rather, each church needs a full assortment of participating body parts. And the same is true of this church. We can't just be a gathering of armpits. It's just. (laughs) Paul says that we are dependent upon one another. We're dependent upon one another because the Spirit has split the workload between all of us. Big families, small families, singles, youth, seniors, all with various personalities, all with various gifts. The Holy Spirit has given every Christian of this congregation gifts with which to edify all of us. And so if we look back at 1 Corinthians, in that chapter, Paul writes, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but the same God that empowers them all and everyone. And so just as the Trinity is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and one God, a perfect unity, with different roles or functions. So there are a variety of gifts, service, activities, given to us, a plurality for one body, one purpose. But notice that the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that distributes gifts as He wills. And I believe we in the church suffer from two big problems when it comes to, let's say, this topic of spiritual gifts. As I've already alluded to, we, we fail to use them to edify one another. But too, we often forget that we were given gifts by God himself to accomplish his will for his glory. Most of the time when someone mentions the topic spiritual gifts, the first thing I think about is, is one of those spiritual gift tests. And I can't help it because that, particularly you know, in the 80s, Uh, well, probably every decade really has just been one of the most popular things that Christians do, right? They take a a spiritual gift test. And I've taken a half a dozen over the the decades, each time with the excited prospect of, of discovering what my specific gift or gifts happen to be, and they're always typically the same. And I was never surprised to be lacking the gift of mercy, for example, but I definitely was thrilled at the notion of possessing the word of knowledge. And thankfully, it was always the other person that possessed the gift of evangelism. Because they could go and proclaim the gospel and I would just curl up and read a good book. Right? It's a great gift, the word of knowledge. Does that match your experience? When I mention spiritual gifts, do you think just about the gifts in the abstract and and which one you possess, or which multiple you possess, or, or do you think about the gift giver, the one who gives the gifts, the Holy Spirit? You see, we have to understand that every believer is foremost given the gift, capital G, of the Holy Spirit, God himself, so that we may be united into one body of Christ, just as he is one. And so his gifts, which are the outflowing of his work in our lives, are meant actually to enhance our unity. They're meant to enhance our interdependence. Too much focus on spiritual gifts as independent of the Holy Spirit and the purpose for which they are given tends to elevate the importance of the individual in isolation from others. And these gifts aren't just found in the New Testament. They're also found in the Old Testament because the Spirit actually equipped many individuals in the Old Testament period. We're told that He gave gifts to some to construct the tabernacle. He inspired prophets to prophesy about what God was going to do. And the important thing is to understand that these giftings were for specific purposes in the cause of kingdom ministry. And so when I used to take those spiritual gift tests, the people who created them had this nice comprehensive list of all the gifts based upon primarily three different passages of Scripture. Our morning passage, the 1 Corinthians passage that I read, and Ephesians, and then sometimes another 1 Corinthians passage. But they're all these nice lists, right? But But the listings in Paul's letters are not intended to be a comprehensive or complete list. Don't think that what you see in these passages are the only gifts that the Spirit gives to his people. And also don't try to make too sharp a line between many of them. For example, is there a clear difference between the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom? Or between the gift of healing and the gift of miracles? Probably not. At best, what I think we can do actually is is divide what the Spirit does in us into two basic categories. Gifts of word and then of deed. For example, the Apostle Peter seems to point out this difference in 1 Peter 4 when we read, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And so Peter says every believer, whatever the very grace of God is, it expresses itself in and through the believers and the members of the body, they are all meant to either speak or to serve, do. And so putting everything together that we've learned so far, if the gifts are about empowering Christians in word and deed to minister to others in the body of Christ, then we should not be asking so much, what are my spiritual gifts? But rather, what in this situation in which God has placed me are the particular opportunities that I see for serving others in word and deed? That's the question. And responding to that question will go a long way towards both discovering and actually using our gifts. And I'll tell you something else. Nearly every time that I took those tests, I felt like I was affirmed in areas that I already believed to be strengths. And it was easy for me to study the Scriptures and thus... This idea of having a a gift of the word of knowledge seemed to fit, but it was difficult for me to be merciful to others or to go out and boldly proclaim the gospel. And knowing that I didn't have those gifts, this is the point, knowing that I didn't have those gifts made me feel better about my weaknesses. But there's something not quite right about that, right? Right? The Bible tells us that God's power is made perfect in weakness. So how am I allowing God to demonstrate his power through my weakness if I only want to exercise those areas that I believe are my strengths? And so friends, what I'm saying is this. The important aspect of a spiritual gift is not that some talent of yours becomes extraordinary but rather that you, especially in your weakness, become extraordinarily effective through the power of the Holy Spirit to minister to someone else. Am I saying that there's no distinction at all between one believer and another? No, but I am cautioning us against the modern trend of creating these great distinctions, these great comprehensive lists, or so we think, between one body part and another, so that we all end up as so many individuals in the church Performing our own ministries for our own edification, for our own strength. And I'm also cautioning against the temptation to say that because I seem to possess gift A, that I should do ministry A, and leave the ministry of gift B to the person who possesses gift B. We are all commanded, for example, to teach sound doctrine, even though there is a gift of teaching. We are all commanded to rightly divide God's word... ...even though there is a gift of discernment. We are all commanded to edify the body... ...even though there are gifts of mercy, hospitality, and so on. We are all commanded to boldly go out and share the good news... ...even though there may be a gift of evangelism. So are only a small percentage of the people in our church... though specially gifted with mercy to be merciful... Absolutely not, but to the one whom God has especially gifted with mercy, God's ministry of mercy is manifested in a particularly powerful way such that when we see that person in action, we are moved to give God glory in even greater measure. Does that make sense? Even as we are all commanded to be merciful. And what's exciting about when, when all the members of God's body, interdependent of one another and, and remembering that we are directed by the brain and, and recognizing that we all are going to be utilized by the God in his very grace, by the Spirit to minister, when we all as one movement come out and do the work of God in word and deed, in love of one another, We look around and we say, wow, look at how God is using this person. And sometimes it's especially despite their weakness. Look at what God is doing. Right? Not just this person that's always had this great talent. But wow, God is really moving through this person. This clearly is of God. This clearly is of God for his kingdom, for his glory. I am afraid that the modern church, including sometimes ours, has lost sight of this principle. Not only do we leave the exercise of gifts that we lack to other members, but often we hire pastors and appoint elders and deacons and expect them to do it. We think Duane is going to have all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when his performance demonstrates a lack of one or more, then he gets traded in on a new model. And it's true of, probably, it's, it's usually more true of the person, right, that, that's, invisib- that's invisible, that is visibly in front of, of the church. In many churches, the pastor, the vocational elder, whatever we call it. And, and when, when he doesn't possess the gifts that we want to see, then we trade him in for a new model, right? And typically... That new model has the gifts that the old one lacked, but of course he lacks others that the old one had. And then the search, it just cycles through over and over again. But God did not give elders and deacons to the church to meet all the needs of the body. So my job, Dave Langley's job, David Gregg's job, is to equip you, for example, as elders, by teaching you, praying for you, encouraging you. And then here comes the shocking part that The elders are not supposed to do all of the hospitality and the soul winning and the mercy working and the soul exhorting alone. We are all of us, the whole body of believers, supposed to do that work of service together. And if anything, because the elders have been gifted, maybe with some of the gifts that are surrounding shepherding and teaching, it may be that they actually do lack many of the gifts that you are supposed to contribute. A church that does not understand these will not function properly. It's a no-win situation. So Romans 1, verse 11, Paul says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And we see in this how, what, what is motivating Paul, I want to strengthen you. Here's a good question. As you drive on your way to church every Lord's Day, as you prepare in your hearts on a Friday, Saturday, and you know that Sunday's coming, right? All of those things, are you going, oh, who am I going to strengthen this day? Who am I going to strengthen today? That's what Paul is saying. It doesn't mean that Paul personally didn't receive any joy or benefit from the exercise of gifts that God had given him or you know, in edifying through word and deed the body. But it does suggest that what we've seen so far this morning is that gifts are given to be given. Gifts are given to be given. They are not meant to be hoarded, nor are they meant to kind of point back the focus upon ourselves, but they are meant to motivate us to come and say, how may I strengthen this person by what God has given me in His very grace in a way that will give Him glory and make it evident that God is using me. So all around you this morning sit people whose faith is being challenged in one way or another. It might be a spouse, a child, a parent, a coworker, even perhaps themselves. And our attitude should be that as Paul that we long to share gifts with them. And note that he says some spiritual gift. Honestly, even though Paul makes these lists, when he says some spiritual gift, I doubt that Paul is overly concerned with whether he possessed the gift of apostleship. He's trying to say, I long to serve with you, the, you know, give you the gift of apostleship. What he wanted to do was help. What he wanted to do was speak and act, strengthen, encourage edify, and prayed that God would make him effective through the work of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, because of that, I'm actually not a big proponent of spiritual gift tests. A far more basic problem that we have to deal with is that we simply too often don't have a desire to strengthen a brother or sister's faith. Too often as I said last week, it's our sovereign, independent, individual selves coming through the doors of the church waiting to be fed, waiting to be entertained with expectations that are often unbiblical. And then we leave often disappointed because that's not what the church is fully about. And so I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Lord, I want to strengthen someone's faith today. Grant that at the end of this day, your day, Your kingdom was served. Somebody will be more confident of your promises and more joyful in your grace because I crossed his or her path. Gift me in some way. That's that's what Paul's saying. Gift me in some way to make my weaknesses become powerful because of your spirit. Be glorified in me. Imagine if we prayed that every single week. Wouldn't that be good? That would be great. And when you let that become your attitude, when you desire to build up the body, the Holy Spirit, I am fully convicted and believe will use that kind of attitude because that's the type of people God wants. So as we've seen these past three weeks, the stakes are high. We are called to engage in spiritual war We are to stand strong against the gates of hell. There should be this great excitement as we gather together on the Lord's Day. There should be a sense of missing the rest of the members of the body, of the church family during the week that we are apart. There should be high talk during the week. About the purpose of the church, prayer for the leaders of this local body of believers and for one another, a desire to be involved in the use of our gift that we may strengthen in some way one another in word and deed. There should be this expectation that we will be used by the Lord for his glory, that the church as a whole This great unity of corporate believers will display to all the principalities and powers in heavenly places the wisdom of God. Author Jerry Bridges once wrote, For many years I took an individualistic approach to the Christian life. I was concerned about my growth as a Christian, my progress in holiness, my acquisition of ministry skills. I prayed that God would enable me... To be more holy in my personal life and more effective in my evangelism, I asked God's blessing on my church and the Christian organization that I worked for. But as I learned more about true fellowship, I began to pray that we, as the body of Christ, would grow in holiness. That we would be more effective witnesses to the saving grace of Christ. For it is the entire body, not just me, that needs to grow. And so I commend that to you this morning. And my prayer is that you would desire the same things and that as we work together, all of us, in one household, one body, one family, as Bridges writes, that the we will turn to a, the I will turn to we in all of our lives. And I'm excited about what God will do with that kind of attitude, permeating, saturating this body of believers. May the Lord bless us. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your varied grace. I thank you, Lord, that you've not made us all the same. But Father, in that difference, may we praise you for the unity that you create. That we are better together than we are apart. That we need one another. And that you have given us, each of us, things to give to one another. And where we see division, where we see factionalism, where we see individualism, where we find each other distracted by the world's philosophies, where we come in with unbiblical expectations, may we continue to be a loving, gentle, but constant encouragement to one another. Let us strive for what is better. Let us strive for the higher way. Let us lift up this which you in your ministry, built what you meant to sustain, what you meant to display, to hold steady the truth, may we be used by you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.